0: Welcome this morning. Glad to see you back as we study First Peter together. If this is your first time, we're so glad that you're with us. I hope you don't get lost in it at all. I'll try my best not to let that happen. Um, we're going to stand now to read God's word together in First Peter. So, if you're able, would you stand and turn in your bulletins or your Bibles to First Peter, chapter two, verses thirteen through seventeen? Peter writes, "Servants, be subject to your masters." By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that this strange text, Father, that feels really miles away from our ordinary lives, that you would preach the gospel to us and that you would give us more of your Son. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So what do we do with a passage like this? You know, we have before us this morning a situation in which the Apostle Peter, an emissary of Jesus, an emissary of the truth, is writing to slaves, servants is a nice translation, but really slaves, and telling them to obey their masters, to submit to their masters, even when they suffer unjustly. What do we do with a passage like this? Not only does the position of the addressees apply to none of us in the room this morning, but uh, in the Western world, the whole institution of slavery has been judged an evil as it should be. And sometimes passages like these that don't immediately confront that institution as the evil that it is seem to discredit the Bible's authority to rule over our moral vision. So what do we do as Christians with a passage like this? So what I want us to do this morning. I want us to listen to Peter with charity. And as God's word, I want us to listen with anticipation that God is here and he has this passage for us in this room this morning. And I think that if we do that, if we listen well like we should to anyone, really, but I think as we do it here this morning, we'll find that, that Peter's words are really revolutionary for the church in his day, just as they are in some different ways revolutionary, I think, for us. Because what Peter says this morning to this church and this time in that place, 2,000 years ago, radically confronted the social norms of those Christians. And he radically confronts our social norms as well. So let's look at it for a moment with those two questions in mind. Number one, how does Peter specifically confront the church in his day with the gospel, and how does he do so for us? Let me back up for a moment and give you the big picture of what's going on so so back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, and Mark spent three weeks on this, we really have the central verse, or the central two verses of the book. In 2, 11 through 12, Peter writes this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And the important thing to note there is, it's written throughout the book, it's our theme this year, this, this, uh, this kind of August through May, is that Peter is addressing people who are out of step with the world. He calls them sojourners, exiles. These are are people who should not consider this world their home. And what does he tell them to do? Well, listen to verse 12. This is sort of the summary for his instructions. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. How do do we make our way in the world that's not our home? Peter says, keep your conduct honorable, do good, that other people may look at your good and may see your good and, and long to know the God that you worship. Now the reason that's so important is because really the rest of the letter is spelling that out for us. What does it mean to do good in the specific social situations in which Peter's listeners faced. The first situation that he applied the gospel to, the gospel of doing good, of of living well, of being honorable, was the situation we looked at last week. It was a situation that we find ourselves in when there are, for whatever reason, civil authorities above us that we don't agree with, um, whose uh, convictions we don't share. And Peter says, look, in order to do good, submit. For the Lord's sake, do good still, but submit for the Lord's sake to those authorities. This morning, Peter turns to what was perhaps the most central institution in the Hellenistic world, and that is the institution of the household. The institution of the household. So, the household, or the oikos as it was known in Greek, was not simply about how we think of our homes today, the homes that you'll return to and maybe take a nap in if you're lucky this, this afternoon. It wasn't, it wasn't a Norman Rockwell painting. It was, um, you know, it wasn't a refuge from the public life. The oikos in, in Peter's day was the center of social stability for the state. In fact, it was so important, so critical to social and political stability that every major moral thinker in his day addressed instructions called household codes to this institution. And so Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Plutarch, they all wrote to the household and they wrote about how wives and husbands and servants, slaves, children, were supposed to so order their lives because in their view, um, the household was the constituent basis for a strong and orderly And prosperous society. Now, why is that important for us? It's a lot of words to say this. I want you to see that Peter is teaching Christians how to follow Jesus in the givens of their day. He is saying, look, you don't need your circumstances to change. You don't even need your institutions to change in order for you to be faithful where God has you right now. You can go home You can wake up Monday, you can wake up Tuesday, and discipleship requires faithfulness in those particular contexts. I'll give you a quick illustration of this. If if you have kids or you were a kid once, that's everybody, right? You can laugh for a second. Yeah, thank you, gratuitous. You know, though, how an athlete can capture your imagination, right? So when I was younger, it was Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, for my kids now, it's, it's, it's them watching like Odell Beckham make a two-finger grab. You've seen that, that, that clip maybe. Or watching Steph Curry cross someone up and shoot a, a 40-footer. Or watching Jordan Spieth hit a ridiculous flop shot out of the rough, right? So when kids watch that, what do they immediately want to do? I know what I did, and I know what my kids want to do. They want to go home, and they want to practice that crossover, perfect it in the backyard. They want to see if they can hit that same 40-footer. Even though they can't catch with two hands yet, they want to see if they can catch with two fingers now, right? They want to hit that same flop shot. Why is that? They want to take the moves of their models and bring them into the context of their ordinary lives. We want those moves happening in our backyards. And I want you to see that's exactly what Peter is doing. He is saying to these early Christians, here is how you take the ethic of Jesus Christ, here is how you take the moves of your Lord and Savior and apply them in your own backyard into your everyday, into your ordinary context of household and vocation and civic life. Peter, for these next few chapters, is speaking the gospel into their backyard. Now, what was the backyard of these servants? I want to just approach that for a moment because it's a little bit different than how we often think about slavery. The situation of these household servants was not the same as the situations wrought by New World slavery. New World slavery was race-based. It was whole person and lifetime ownership that was resourced and perpetuated through illegal kidnapping. Very, very different nor is the situation of these household servants any sort of parallel to illegal trafficking today. And I say that because it would be completely wicked and completely out of touch to use a passage like this to defend those institutions. So what was life like for the servants? Well, these servants lived in the household, almost a part of the family. They weren't segregated from the rest of society. They often accrued enough capital to buy their freedom in 10, 15 years if they saved the right way. There wasn't a whole lot of noticeable difference between a household servant, if you walked on the street, and a free person of the lower class in the Roman world of that day. Now, I'm not saying that to excuse the social order. I don't want you to hear me doing that. And and clearly in this passage, The servants could be treated in really horrible ways, just like wives could, just like children could. I'm just telling you this to frame the proper context for Peter's address. The way to think about these servants is they were the bottom rung of the household institution. They were the lowliest. They were the least empowered wherever they walked in their day-to-day life. So how were Peter's words revolutionary for them? Well, I want you to notice three quick things in the passage. The first thing I want you to notice is this, that Peter addresses the household slaves, the household servants, directly. He addresses them personally, as church members, as human beings capable and responsible for their own behaviors. Now, you wouldn't notice that because it's not a big deal to us, but it was a big deal to them because none of the other Greek thinkers who wrote the household codes ever addressed slaves, ever addressed servants. (laughs) They addressed the men of the household, and they expected them to enforce order through their authority. But Peter says, I'm going to talk to you as human beings and not just about you, because you are moral agents made with the dignity of God's image. That's the version number one, he talks to them. The second thing I want you to notice is that Peter addresses the household servants first in order. He addresses them first before he addresses wives or husbands who he addresses last. And that's important because the household servants were always last. They were least. And yet if you peek ahead, you'll notice that Peter not only treats them first here, but he talks to them the longest. He treats them with the most length. He spends more time on them than he does with anyone else in the household. That's curious. (laughs) Why would he do that? Well, Peter believed that these servants occupied a critical role in how the gospel would be demonstrated in the household institution. And Peter is saying to these servants, I want you to know that what you are doing in your service has incredible value. In the kingdom of God. It's an important reminder for us this morning, isn't it? That what the world often considers menial or undignified or small or lowly is not the evaluation shared by Jesus Christ. That in the kingdom of God, meaning and value and impact are assessed very differently than they're assessed in the world. That's the version number two. And finally, and most shockingly here in the passage, especially in verses 21 through 25, I want you to see this, that Peter attaches their vocation as servants as the vocation that most closely resembles the story of Jesus Christ here on earth. That is maybe a little bit shocking for us, would have been incredibly shocking for them, that you would say that God himself came to earth, that he wore our flesh, and he was made in the image of a household servant? (laughs) That the God of the universe could have become anyone, and he chose instead to live a life that was parallel, that resembled that of a servant. And notice that Peter is saying this as the church is listening, so that we'll hear it as well to see that Jesus became a servant, and that is, that is the household servant, is the image in whom we should all desire to become, that we should long to be servants that we should long to know him through his own servanthood and be like him and how these servants are are serving him as well. I heard a a story recently um, this week. The story was about a friend who went to the movies with his wife. It's Valentine's Day, so listen up. Close to it. Goes to the movie and he sits down with his wife and um, the movie starts. It's dark in the theater. And so he gets up to go grab some popcorn, right? Forgot the popcorn. And he goes and he gets the popcorn and he brings back the Coke and he goes back to where his wife's sitting and he sits next to her and he cuddles up next to her and he puts his arm around her and starts eating popcorn and watching the movie until all of a sudden he hears the whisper, Bruce, it's your wife. I'm up here. (laughs) Don't forget where your wife is sitting in the theater. In the New Testament, over and over again, over and over again, Jesus whispers to his followers, church, if you want to be near me, I'm down here. I'm, I'm way further down than you expected to find me. Where do we hear those whispers? Well, we hear them first in his birth, born in a marginal city on the edge of the Roman empire in a cattle stall. We hear those whispers loud and clear in his life. Jesus lives the life of an itinerant, homeless preacher. We hear those whispers in his teaching when he tells us clearly at the end of Matthew as he goes to the cross that whatever you do for the least of these, you are doing for me because I identify with them. He makes that whisper clear to us in his death on a poor man's cross, a criminal's cross outside of the city gates. That whisper comes to us again this morning here in Peter's passage as Peter elevates the dignity of the lowliest in his culture to the ones that we should all long to imitate. Put it to you this way. No one ever says, when they're young or when they're older, I don't think, I want to be a servant when I grow up. Oh, Lord, make me a servant when I grow up. And yet by elevating the dignity of this image, Peter is saying that if you want to follow Jesus, that is exactly how we have to think. Where do we start? Well, Peter shows us. We start in our own homes, in our own households. We start in our own places of work. We start in our own neighborhoods with our neighbors and the institutions that surround us. You don't have to go far this afternoon to apply this, right? You go home and you start doing it in the name of Jesus. It is without a doubt revolutionary in Peter's day to hold up the household servant as the very image of God, with the subtle implication for us this morning that if we want to be like Jesus, this is the image that we have to long for as well. There is, however, another aspect of the passage that I think is also a little bit revolutionary, more so for us than perhaps it was for them and it not only involves the elevation of the dignity of the image of a servant, but it also involves the elevation of the experience of suffering as God's love for us. So you'll notice that, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly this morning because you're going to get a, a heavy dose of this in a couple more chapters. You'll notice if you've read the passage again that in verses 22 through 25, Peter starts talking about and describing Jesus. And what Peter is doing there is he's lifting a passage from the prophet Isaiah, who had written that description 800 years before, and it's the description that likens the coming Messiah to a suffering servant. And before he finishes that description, back in verse 21, Peter introduces the suffering servant by saying that he is your example to follow. But I noticed in the Greek, that, and, and commentators mention this, that that all the English words, for example, aren't strong enough. That when Peter says that here is your example to follow, what he's doing is he's using a word that was also used when kids would learn to trace their alphabet out. He would put the piece of paper on over the letters and trace the letters. And and what Peter is getting at is this should be the closest of copies. The closest of copies. That if we are to live as servants of God... We have to embrace suffering as an essential part of that identity. Just like Jesus did. The reason I want you to see that this morning is because I don't think the idea of service is very revolutionary for us. I think that we're we tend to be a a fairly philanthropic people now. But what is a little bit revolutionary is that we would not just see philanthropy and surface, service, excuse me, as sort of finding the room in our lives wherever our margins of comfort and security take us. The servanthood that God is calling us to trace is servanthood that stings. It's servanthood that feels pain. It's servanthood that wakes you up, that endures sorrow. And I get that that, that this is specifically talking this morning about suffering servanthood in the face of injustice, but this is utterly consistent with what Jesus teaches us about suffering in general in the gospel. The world says, if you are suffering here this morning, that your suffering is to be alleviated as soon as possible. And if you are suffering here this morning, that your suffering may even be an indication that in your life things have gone horribly wrong. That you are being punished by the gods (laughs) or by fate or by your choices. But in the gospel, God says suffering is what it means to follow my son Jesus. And if you belong to him, you can always count suffering as the promise of my love to remake you and to win in your life. Suffering is my commitment to reshape you into the image of my son. Now, this is not a popular message, not just in our world, but in our churches today. One pastor put it this way, following Jesus is no longer about sacrifice and suffering. Western Christians, by and large, have stopped denying ourselves. We now talk more about the right to become ourselves. Our Christian lives are a continuation of our previous lives with a thin Christian veneer laid on top. Just be nicer to a few more people. Tell you what, if that is the ethic of Christianity, you cannot square it with this passage. Try as you may. You can't square it with Jesus' call to take up your cross, an instrument of pain and death, and to deny yourself and to follow him. What can you square it with then? Jesus says, you can square it with my love for you, with my grace in your life look back at verse 19, in verse 19, God says, or Peter says, for this is a gracious thing. And what that means is not that it's a nice thing, or it's a painless thing, or it's even a heroic thing, but it means, what Peter is saying is that it is a means of grace in your life. When you suffer for my sake. I want you to listen to how the converted slave trader, John Newton, put it in one of his hymns. The hymn is called I ask the Lord, and the hymn goes like this, Newton writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. You see the request there? You've prayed it before probably, Lord help me to grow, make me grow, I want to know you more. Innocuous request, right? He says this, I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. So Newton is saying, look, I asked for growth and I was sure, I was oh so sure that God would answer it in a way that delighted me. The hymn continues. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is that? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? It is this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayer for grace and faith. The hymn closes with these words in the voice of God. These painful trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and to break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. That you may find your all in me what is the great purpose of telling a a servant to suffer unjustly or telling you to take up your cross or bringing unsought suffering into our lives? Newton says God does this to set you free, to free you from the idols of pride and self, to break those in your life and to break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in the one you were created to find your all in, and that is him. And who is this God? Who is the Him? Who is the God that wields suffering and elevates pain and and names it as a means of love in our lives? You catch what Peter said? Peter said, this is the God who gave us all for you. He is the one who suffered unjustly. He is the one who bore your sins on a tree to free you from condemnation and guilt and shame this morning. He is the one whose wounds are the fount of your healing partially in this life and fully in the life to come. He is the one, Peter says, whose love and joy rests on you as the shepherd and the overseer of your soul and yet he will not rest in his work in you and on you until all your joy rests in him. One of his final letters from a Nazi prison camp Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German who was martyred for preaching the gospel under Hitler, he, he, he said, look, I learned to become a suffering servant in a prison camp. In one of his final letters, he, he writes this. He says, it is not a religious act that makes a Christian. It is participation in the sufferings of God in the secular life. That is repentance. Not in the first place, thinking about one's own needs and problems and sins and fears, but allowing oneself to be caught up in the way of Jesus Christ. Then he says this, and I want to leave you here this morning. He says, pain is a holy angel. It's a holy messenger. Through pain, men have become greater than through all the joys of the world but it needs to be overcome every time, and thus there is an even holier angel than the one of pain, and that is the angel of joy in God. You catch Bonhoeffer's admonition as he left the world himself. From a German prison camp where he learned the way of a suffering servant, Bonhoeffer says, God grants you two holy angels. One is the angel of pain. That you might overcome, that you might become greater than all the joys of the world. But the other is greater and more holy, and it is the angel of joy in God. That your pain might, might be overcome, that your tears might be wiped away, that they may be dissolved, and that you might find your all in Him. In the God who suffered and serves you this morning, the one in whose image, that the church is to trace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word to us about slaves and servants submitting to their masters. And we thank you, God, for the way that you raise the dignity of individuals created in your image. Give us eyes to see, O Lord. We pray also, O God, that you would challenge us and assure us that the way that you are remaking us and even in our pain is your love for us. It is to unite us more closely with your son and to trace for the world the image of your son in the world. We pray, God, that you would give us more grace. You would conform us to his image in whatever way you must. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, we're gonna stand now and sing this last hymn. I want you to know that as we sing, there will be people on either side of the sanctuary this morning, down the aisles that are ready to pray for you and pray with you. If you have anything at all Anything at all you want to pray about, be courageous. Come, let us pray for you. We've counted it to joy. Let's stand and sing.